You are listening to How to Stan, a show about both specific fandoms as well as fandom culture as a whole, internet culture, pop culture. For more information about this podcast, as well as my other one, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit howtostand.substack.com, as well as 17-C-A-R-A-T, 17 Karat, kpop.weebly.com. You can find a full How to Stand episode guide in a special tab on that website. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to How to Stan. We're just going to dive right into my countdown of, in no particular order, the most buzzworthy, bizarre, notable, truly psychological experiment-ish reality shows of all time. And then dig into, in the second half, more of the root causes of our desire for reality television. Why do we find it so entertaining? And you'll see how it's all tied together. Number one. This show didn't really have a backlash, but I do think it's a bizarre, interesting premise worth talking about. An MTV dating show. Next. Which aired from 2005 to 2008. The basic premise was there was a date, and five contestants. In the date, the person who was the star of the episode, the star of the episode would one by one go on a date with one of the five contestants, who all just chill in an RV together, waiting for their turn. The catch is that the star has the power to just say next and move on to the next contestant at any time. So if they sit down and say, hi, I'm so-and-so and I like football and that annoys you, you can say next and the date's already over. It could last five seconds, five hours, as long as the star wants it to. The power stays in your hands to call it off at any second or to keep the fun going. If you say next, it's time for the next contestant to emerge from the RV and show up and try their luck. If you say next to all five contestants of the week, sorry, you're by your lonesome, you end the episode single. The contestants themselves also have the power to say next, so things can be very weird and start and stop. If things are going really well and you don't want to say next, you don't have to. The star can ask that contestant for a follow-up date but they can only ask for a second date from one of the contestants. So after they propose a second date to the person who they believe is the winner out of the five, the episode is over, that star's time is done. I would love to have been a fly on the wall. There was a pre-selected order of who is first, second, third, etc. So if you were the poor sucker who was pre-selected to go last by the producers, not by nose goes or something, a little more fair, your only chance to even get a date in the episode was if they said next to all four people before you. Theoretically, your time on the show could be limited to scenes where you're just chilling in an RV, and that's it for you. Here is an extra twist the show had. The cash prize was based on the length of your date, $1 per minute. So if you lasted, let's say, an hour, you earned 60 bucks. If you made it one minute or less, you just got $1. And you can keep your money or get the second date. You can't do both. So if they decide not to say next and to accept you and extend their invite to go on a second date, you can take that invite and pursue a second date or you take the money. This was actually quite popular. Versions were made in Spanish, French, in Canada, Bulgaria, lots of different versions. Number two, bizarre in, I would argue, a less entertaining way, Celebracadabra from April 2008. This was when a bunch of D-list celebrities basically competed 
It was like dancing with the stars, but for magic tricks, to learn the ropes of magic and perform tricks each week. At different locations, on the streets, around little kids, in a retirement home. Then it took a weird turn, a kind of a docu-series turn, when the top two contestants took their show on the road. The winner would receive a 100k grand prize. Arguably, I would say because of the D-list ranking of the celebs they got on the show, the ratings were just abysmal, and it lasted one season. Number three, The Will. This show was on CBS in January 2005. It basically turned earning what was in a will into a game show. So this multi-millionaire, who they called on the show, The Benefactor, decided to sell his multi-million dollar property, this ranch in Kansas, to one of ten contestants, which were all his friends and family. His wife ended up winning the show, so the whole thing was probably just rigged. Very weird. And it actually only premiered one episode. However, all six were eventually aired in New Zealand for some reason. Number four, I want to marry Harry. Harry is in quotes, and you'll see why in a second. This was a show on Fox in May 2014. Twelve American women were competing on this dating show to see who the man of the hour would fall in love with, who was just referred to on the show as Sir. The twist, the scripted twist, Telling the contestants, yeah, you were right, it is Prince Harry. Not just a lookalike, it's the real Prince Harry you are competing for the love of. The thing is, it wasn't Prince Harry. So the audience was in on what the contestants were oblivious to. So all the royal settings, the security guards, the helicopter travel, the hushed conversations about royal matters, the presence of someone clearly trained in etiquette and princely hobbies, behaviors, all of it was manufactured to further the belief of these contestants that, yep, you were right to suspect it is Prince Harry. But actually, it was all created to dupe them. And at the end of the season, that's when he would reveal to the winning contestant, I'm not Prince Harry. Just a remarkable lookalike, chosen out of over a hundred. The guy they ended up falling in love with? Matthew Hicks, a 23-year-old environmental firm consultant, who actually didn't act or anything, except for sporadic cameos, where he would kind of impersonate Harry, because the resemblance to him and a young Prince Harry, pretty uncanny. It was just one eight-episode season, The full season eventually aired on Fox's site, as well as in Latin America, Australia, and the UK. But only the first four aired in the USA, before the network just got rid of it. Didn't do well ratings-wise, which is interesting. I wonder if today that kind of premise would be more popular. Contestants say when they auditioned, all they were told is it was a dating show called Dream Date. Very, very vague. Twelve women compete for a guy's love. That was it. The part where this show gets controversial and potentially emotionally damaging, manipulative. Whenever the woman would get suspicious, like, wait, am I sure this is really that Prince Harry? That can't be right. When their eyebrows would raise about anything, the producers would take it upon themselves to shut that doubt down. To sit the woman down and say, no, 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 your brain is trying to play tricks on you. Your brain is trying to convince you this really is too good to be true. Don't listen to that voice. You are right, and you've got to trust that. 
They even had a producer fake therapist credentials and talk to them as if they were a licensed therapist to say, hey, you've got to work through this. These doubts you're raising because you're insecure and worried and trying to protect yourself if things don't work out. It also sounds like it was emotionally dangerous, potentially, because of the week leading up to the show filming. Apparently, this is not an uncommon thing to do in the reality TV world, where before filming, contestants are isolated for a period of time. In this case, contestants actually had to stay isolated in hotel rooms for a week. No TV, no access to the outside world, and no talking to each other. Apparently, yeah, that's not unheard of before a reality show season. They want to isolate contestants from the outside world, and they want to get you in that mentally vulnerable state, and maybe just really in the mood for talking and causing drama because you've spent a week bored and craving company and a break from monotony. It's fascinating in hindsight what they've said about their experiences on the show. Past contestants who have given follow-up interviews years later have said, yeah, I'd do it again. It was a very cool experience. Very regal. Very cool, elaborate dates. It was just a fun show to be on, despite the manipulation. It's actually not as clear if Matthew Hicks himself would do it again, because since the show came out, he has been showing extreme remorse for deceiving people. Although, it probably lessens his guilt that he's actually still friends with the winner, Kimberly. They're not together together, but they're still friends and they keep in touch. Really interesting, odd experience that bonded all of them. Number five, Doomsday Preppers. One of the highest rated shows in National Geographic Channel's history. It premiered in 2011 and was all about raiding Doomsday Preppers' preparation. An actual company called Practical Preppers came in and did a performance review, essentially, for these end-of-the-world preppers' efforts to see who was the, the most prepared. Inexplicably, the casting for this show was held during September 2011. The show lasted four seasons, but I would argue it should have been less, because as fascinating as it is, it does sound like it exploited these vulnerable, fearful, paranoid people. And the ratings boom did nothing but incentivize keeping up this kind of programming that emphasizes and puts a spotlight on some vulnerable people who should probably just seek therapy, not TV cameras. Number six, Sexy Beasts. This was actually a show in the UK back in 2014, before Netflix recently rebooted it. This is actually really common. As I was researching the history of reality TV, I saw this again and again and again, the USA adapting shows that actually started in the UK. The original only lasted one season, but that did not deter Netflix from investing in a reboot. The basic premise of Sexy Beasts is that you can't see your date because they are dressed up as a literal beast with prosthetics, stage makeup, etc. Netflix has a ton of successful dating shows with similar energies to them, like The Circle, where contestants can only communicate virtually, There's Too Hot to Handle, where contestants are banned from physical contact, There's Love is Blind, where you can't actually see who you're dating until after the proposal. They've leaned so heavily into this genre because The Bachelor has year after year consistently been the highest indexing primetime show among its demo audience and doing at times 111% better in its demo than it does in different demos. 
I will link to all the stats and data on my site as usual. But the bottom line being, do not underestimate the massive popularity of The Bachelor. Truly next level. And so of course they thought Sexy Beast would work. It's The Masked Singer meets The Bachelor. Number 7. Black White. Spaced out in the most annoying way. Black period. Wide space. White. This is just, I can't believe this made it to air. It was almost like wife swap with blackface. White and black families sharing this house in San Fernando Valley spent a few times a week going out in public to different places in LA wearing their makeup that made them look black or white. They changed the race to see what would happen. Really illuminating social experiment, plus an offensive one, but really just darkly fascinating how the family's behaviors changed in response to their spouses, kids, etc. looking different. Like certain really creepy contestants seemed kind of turned on the second their spouse got a different skin tone. Others seemed to really suddenly see their kid as like really way more beautiful than ever. And the stuff that the contestants said when they felt newly emboldened or not in the other skin tone. Very cringe. Very awful. Very weird. I can't believe this show was greenlit. Similarly, in WTF, number eight is Welcome to the Neighborhood, which didn't even air an episode. It got canceled before the premiere. Welcome to the Neighborhood was an ABC show set to premiere July 2005. There was this place in Austin, Texas, this cul-de-sac, and these neighbors were all very similar demographically. White, upper class, Christian, conservative, and the neighbors together had to vote on who would become their new neighbor out of seven families. And all of these seven families were not those demographics. Families of different religions, a gay couple, a black family, Hispanic family, Korean family, and who they chose would win a 33,000 square foot four bedroom house, a dream house, in this bigoted neighborhood. So I would argue the trade-off's not worth it, but that's just me. The initial press release from ABC said the show hoped to, quote, get past their own preconceived notions and prejudices. And they said that, hold on, because the first episode looks really bad, but let us explain. Please watch the whole show. And you'll see in the end, quote, some eyes and hearts opening up, opinions changing, and a community transforming, unquote. There was tons of backlash, first of all because one of the three judging families overtly said stuff like, quote, I will not tolerate a homosexual couple. I want a family similar to what we are. Comments like that, so no matter how the show ends, you still are giving a platform to bigoted views. Second issue was just concern for contestant safety. If these people hating them were going to now become their forced neighbors, really potentially dangerous. And how do you know? It will end in changing minds, leading to a new, more inclusive neighborhood. It's very risky to just trust that will happen, for sure. The show was very much protested. Vlad called its tactics, quote, unnecessarily cruel and insensitive. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation came out against the show as well. The National Fair Housing Alliance even accused the show of violating anti-discrimination housing laws, although ABC claimed they had a team of lawyers look into it in advance and were cleared to do this. Even the Family Research Council, a very conservative group, took issue with this show publicly. 
but the reasoning was different. They were just worried the contestants, who were fellow conservatives, would come off looking, quote, biased. ABC decided to just scrap the show. They issued a statement saying, quote, Our intention with Welcome to the Neighborhood was to show the transformative process that takes place when people are forced to confront preconceived notions of what makes a good neighbor, and we believe the series delivers exactly that. However, the fact that true change only happens over time makes the episodic nature of this series challenging, and given the sensitivity of the subject matter in early episodes, we have decided not to air the series at this time. Number nine, I cannot stress enough how much I despise this show. Truly, it was the most awful, mm, one of the most awful out of all of these I'm going to talk about today, The Swan. The Swan is a show that aired April 2004 on Fox, where these women who felt really ugly were each paired with a big team of people who promised to quote-unquote make them beautiful and go through this physical transformation, a team with a trainer, dentists, cosmetic surgeons, for a three-month makeover period. Two women were the focus of each episode, and you see their three-month journey to quote-unquote become beautiful. Not just that, but you also saw one of them get sent home each week. Then the one who I guess turned out to get a better makeover moves on to the next round, which is the end-of-season swan pageant. The premise was turning these ugly ducklings into swans. Whatever you are imagining, I can promise you it's even worse than that. Truly awful show. So dangerous, so damaging. They would start out by watching this testimonial video of sorts of each contestant. And the videos would show them the introduction the audience got and the teams of pros got was their backstory. Them talking about some dark stuff, relationship woes, body image issues, just real struggles. And after burying their soul about everything inside them that needed help, the team would scrutinize the video and point out all of the things on the outside that could help. Like, I remember right after this one contestant was opening up about needing to rebuild trust in romantic relationships in her past toxic one. Then we pivot to the team who just watched this video, and they're saying things like, yeah, we better make those ears look smaller, and we'll start with the chin implant, we gotta change the teeth, they look too big, etc. They talked about it in such an annoying way, too. They would say things like, well, obviously we should do this first. Like, so ugly, how could you even think about not doing that first? There was an actual therapist on each team. So while you were working with the trainers, cosmetic surgeons, etc., they did try to at least pretend they were helping you with a makeover on the inside too and deal with the mental aspect of it. I highly doubt that did much good, counterbalanced with a barrage of harmful messaging about your looks from every other member on the team. The only thing I will say here in the show's defense is that some people would argue, well, are they even real doctors, real coaches, etc.? They actually were. They were board certified and stuff. This wasn't like a potential botched procedure. But jeez, the whole show would really make you feel bad for the contestants and hope they seek therapy or something. And then all their problems would feel like they went away and they would smile and feel like they're a reborn person. They became the swan and their whole life turned around because of a physical makeover. And honestly, to me, I didn't even think the physical makeovers were good. In the sense that they almost, it's hard to explain, but they almost all ended up looking the same. 
the shape of different facial features and the lengths of them, the outfits they were styled in for the grand reveal. It really just felt very formulaic, and really that speaks to a larger issue with how narrow society defines beauty that was very evident in the show. To me, when it was supposed to be exciting and you'd be happy for them, seeing them become unrecognizable, to me, they did look unrecognizable at the end. But I was like, oh no, what happened to you? They all ended up looking, for lack of a better word, generic for reality TV. Number 10. Shattered. Shattered was a show in the UK on Channel 4 in 2004. This show admitted right off the bat, we have no idea what's going to happen. This is pretty unprecedented in the world of human psych experiments. They put 10 contestants together to go seven days without sleep. Yep, without sleep. And they had to work together and encourage each other to stay awake because every time one of them closed their eyes for 10 seconds or longer, a thousand pounds were dropped from the potential 100,000 pound cash prize. They had to do these contests, these agility tests, these mental skill tests, etc. every day on the show. Each day the contestant whose skill level had the steepest drop from the day before, they would be one of the two who had to duke it out in a live challenge. Kind of Big Brother style, live live challenge. And the loser would get evicted that day. To make things even worse, every day there was a you snooze you lose challenge. Where you had to do something designed to help people fall asleep. These challenges included getting a facial massage, watching paint dry, counting sheep on a TV screen, and listening to a lecture on triangles. Riveting stuff. Only four contestants actually ever fell asleep. And the winner, Claire, actually did last 178 hours. But at the end, when every contestant was finally sent to bed, she kind of won because she stayed up the longest, but also because she really physically... Something was very wrong by the end. Like, she had erratic, uncontrollable head movements and stuff. Like, she was really losing it. This truly was so mentally damaging and beyond unhealthy. The contestants would frequently show signs of being in these hallucinatory states. And this is an actual condition when you are, like, dreaming while awake and you start hallucinating. One contestant thought he was playing with an imaginary ball. Some contestants thought someone had just stolen from them. One contestant told a story about wrestling a pro boxer, which never happened. One contestant even thought he was the Prime Minister of Australia, and he was busy filming a soap opera. It was really concerning. Number 11, also very concerning, Born in the Wild. These were people who really wanted to give birth in the wild. They would go outdoors, sans epidurals or anything like that, and have a full natural birth. Sounds like a weird term here, but here are some of the most concerning and weird episode descriptions. Here's one. This is about Lance and Linda. Quote, with a solid birth plan in his hand, they head into the wild to experience an outdoor birth that will connect them with nature. Will they be able to roll with the punches and achieve their goal, or will their birth plan go out the window? in favor of something more traditional, unquote. This one's worse. Quote, Haley and Evan prepare to have their baby outdoors in the dead of winter. Temperatures can reach zero degrees or below, but they have a solid birth plan and are determined to make their dream of an outdoor birth a reality. But when a storm moves into the area, the stakes are ratcheted up. Quote, Rebecca and David prepare for an outdoor birth in the midst of a winter cold snap in rural Tennessee. 
They grew up Amish, and David is a capable craftsman. But when Rebecca goes into labor before they're ready, will they be able to scramble and adapt? Or will their dream of an outdoor birth end up beyond their reach? I have no idea why they try and dream of this so hard, but they do. At least, they made it seem like that in the dramatic descriptions. Next, we have to talk about just some of the many, many survival-themed reality shows. Leaving people in isolated areas, left to their own devices, pretty popular format. There was The Week We Went Wild, where four British families had to basically work together to survive five days in a Panamanian jungle. There was another British show on Channel 4, Boys and Girls Alone, where 20 kids, ages 8 to 11, spent two weeks on their own. Naturally, with a title like Boys and Girls Alone, you're going to get parental complaints. And Ofcom, UK's regulator of shows, totally did. The UK government actually had to order a review of child labor laws in response. And 36 different child specialists signed a petition in protest and called it, quote, child abuse and cruelty, plumbing new depths in broadcasting, complete lack of empathy, disturbing lack of understanding of how children develop, and entertainment head at Channel 4, Andrew McKenzie, responded defensively to the backlash, quote, All the children were carefully chosen and screened by appropriately qualified experts, including a clinical psychologist, to make sure they could cope well with the experience of being in this series, unquote. Andrew also insists parent chaperones were trained for this and on standby at all times. Let's move on to one of the most fascinating ones truly ever in this format and just of reality TV, Kid Nation, a CBS show from September 2007. The premise of Kid Nation was 40 kids with the age range of 8 to 15 lived in a New Mexico ghost town, Bonanza Creek Movie Ranch, actually a previous movie set, this abandoned ghost town for filming which the team would later use to argue that it was an extra safe set to put 40 kids on with little parental supervision. 200 adults-ish were apparently around at all times, as in psychologists, a med team, etc. But very out of sight and out of mind, for the most part it was 40 kids learning to work and live together for weeks. They were doing everything, cooking their own meals, doing their own chores, dividing those chores. There also was kind of a survivor element to it with different challenges they had to do. From the get-go, they had to work together. The opening scene is really wild to watch when you see all these kids who just look like very much kids come off this school bus to this desert area with the host telling them what they're going to do. He says, meet your leaders, the town council, and a helicopter comes down, drops off the four other kids who have been named town council, and these kids, who look just like the other kids, nothing special about their outfits or anything to designate them, are now in charge. Then he gives them all these wagons full of goods and tells them they have to pull the wheelbarrows themselves to the campsite, which is like at least a mile away. So it already starts off where kids are being kids, some are in pain quickly, some are complaining, some are like, well, I'm just leading, that's an important role. Some have that kind of, I'm just going to stay back and watch for your safety argument, lots of stuff like that. The city council every week gets to award one participant a gold star. This is like a literal two pound gold star worth 20k. So who is the outstanding participant the council votes on? It's truly life-changing. 
The others get money too, and they buy things at the saloon, but the amount of money they get is based on which of the four classes they're divided into. Laborers, cooks, merchants, and upper class. They were further divided with team colors, in addition to those types of tasks, just survival tasks and games and stuff, group challenges. They also had some really intellectually deep debate. I may be in the minority here, but I would argue that was the most interesting part of this show. The psych experiment of just watching these kids have really deep debates with each other. How they argued, how they tried to have a constructive debate. They talked about stuff like religion in very interesting ways. Apparently they also had a politics-themed discussion that never aired. Would honestly love to see that. It was really dramatic from the get-go, also because it was described as a way for kids to, quote, fixing their forefathers' mistakes, rebuilding this mining town, reviving a ghost town. Whenever I mention Foreman, I'm talking about Tom Foreman here, who executive produced this, as well as Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Plus, he's an Emmy winner, so this was top billing. It did make a huge splash, probably not in the ways they intended. People really worried about kids' safety, first of all. Kids could be really mean to each other, especially when, behind the scenes, people were kind of egging on certain stereotyping, typecasting, and mean girl characters and stuff like that, and certain tensions between council members and things like that. One time, secretly, these producers gave the spray paint to some teen boys and were like, hey, why don't you go spray blue team, pro-blue team messages over the campsite? So they gave devious ideas to kids and the props to fulfill them. People also worried about physical harm because before the show, parents had to sign a 22-page waiver, which Foreman, for his credit, insists was just out of an abundance, abundance of caution. Not because they really felt like the waivers would end up being in a court of law. In an unaired episode, a couple of kids accidentally drank bleach that looked like seltzer water. The amount of kids who drank it, it differs based on accounts. The official account was that it was just one kid, but it sounds like it was more, and just one kid made the news because he left in an ambulance. There was another incident where an 11-year-old got burned while cooking. There's probably also many other times they got injured we don't know about. One contestant, looking back, recalled getting really dehydrated when he was actually away being treated for that. The episode made it look like he had slept in. They were wondering where he was, and it made it look like he was still napping. But he was actually being hospitalized. So who knows what other times that happened quietly. It was also not exactly the most sanitary thing, not just because these kids are making your food, but because there was one outhouse for all 40 people. And before the, what they called the first showdown, no one was taking showers. There were also concerns about the fact that inexplicably they chose to film this during the school year. So there were concerns about missing class for a month. Foreman argued though that although they were missing formal schooling, they were learning a lot of life skills, which they kind of were, cooking and stuff, teamwork, cooperation, those debates. And then there were concerns about the extent to which the kids were on cameras every day. They filmed in New Mexico, which actually has historically had some of the most lenient of child labor laws, which is honestly one of the reasons they filmed there. And New Mexico had already been a source of an investigation after child labor was brought into question of possible law violations two years prior onset of Into the West. 
Filming took place from 7 a.m. to sometimes midnight, although Foreman claimed there was never an official curfew, which actually kind of makes it sound worse. They were working seven days a week, about 14 hours a day, although their contract said basically they had to be on call 24-7. Plus meal times, they may have not actually abided by rules regarding those breaks because part of the actual job, you could say, was that cooking for yourself. That was like one of their tasks, officially, so that wasn't really off time. It probably should have been factored into a total. There is also no reported record publicly of CBS getting approval from the state that they needed to have certain hours of work given to kids under age 14. But in other ways, New Mexico's loopholes came in very handy to help this stay legal. Previously, New Mexico exempted movie and theatrical productions from its child labor hour limitations. New legislation closed that loophole. Not clear exactly, not specified that Kid Nation prompted the closure of the loophole, but it closed a month or two after Kid Nation filmed, so the causality is likely. Today in New Mexico, kids cannot work more than 18 hours a week during the school year and no filming after 7 p.m. One of the biggest ways they got around these concerns about time on the job was by claiming it wasn't a job. Foreman said, quote, we were essentially running a summer camp. They're not working, they're living, and we're taping it. And that's what they went with. They kept calling it a summer camp. There just happened to be cameras at their summer camp. And in their defense, looking back on it years later, a lot of the participants have voiced that same view. That as a little kid, they did think of it just as kind of a summer camp. It was a fun experiment, a fun chance to try out new things, new challenges in a new environment, play games, socialize, meet new people, get away from parents. All that stuff was appealing to them. The things that bring into question the summer camp defense, though, are first of all, what summer camp pays you a 5k stipend? Second of all, there were times where parents who came to visit set saw producers coaxing kids, and they claimed they heard them feeding lines, things like that. Foreman insists those were just reshoot moments for technical purposes, but I don't know. And third, consent. When it comes to actually signing the waiver and being on this show, kind of debatable actually because you are a kid. Your brain's not fully developed, so can you say that a kid is fully, truly consenting to be there for 40 days? Do they really know what they're getting into? Or is this inherently adults coercing kids? That inherently, potentially intimidating dynamic brought into question how voluntary this was for kids. Although I will say, kids were permitted to drop out whenever they wanted to. And accounts vary, but it sounds like at least three kids left. And before any kid even could participate, they had to be cleared with a psychologist. The mom of the 11-year-old who got burned did later file a complaint with the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office, but they couldn't press charges, found no technical criminality in what happened. There were investigations by the state, the Department of Workforce Solutions, those were all dropped. And apparently, over the course of six months prior to filming, the show's plans for this were thoroughly vetted by a team of lawyers and production and labor experts. Very interesting comment from Foreman when he was overtly asked about Lord of the Flies comparisons. He said the minute they started creating this show, that came to mind. 
And he said, quote, I said, well, there will be elements, and I'm not going to deny the comparison. These are kids living on their own. That said, there are adults off camera waiting to step in if kids got violent. They didn't, we didn't have to, and that's okay, unquote. At the end of the day, though, you have to admit the show was about capitalizing on survivor-type ratings, the success of those kind of shows, spicing up the genre, I guess you could say, and delivering more good ratings to CBS. Not, at the end of the day, really about a fascinating psychology experiment. There are lots of interesting interviews from kids who competed on that show who have spoken up about their experiences. I'll link to some of them on my site as usual. And some, like I said before, do see that time is positive. They would do it again. They became lifelong friends with people. It was just a fun camp experience. Others don't necessarily regret going, but do say in hindsight they can see how it was much more exploitative at the time than they remembered in the moment. Others have complained about being typecast from the get-go, and actually one of them, Michael, did this red AMA and opened up in that about how he was basically picked out of a crowd to be on the show by saying he looked like the perfect stereotypical hippie. The show lasted just one season. A lot of advertisers had already started pulling their ads after episode 3 aired. And yet, despite all the controversy, the show was nominated for Best Family Television Reality Show Game Show or Documentary at the 29th Annual Young Artist Awards. Ian Foreman still stands by and is really proud of his idea. And he has expressed hopes someday for some sort of Season 2 Where Are They Now style project. Number 16. Naked and Afraid. This is a show that's pretty self-explanatory from 2013. Each episode has a man and a woman paired together, naked, trying to survive, on an island together for 21 days. And towards the end, they have to work together to find what's called the extraction point. There's an interesting trend where it seems like the female contestants fare much better than the males, way more often. Truly, the men on this show focused on fishing and hunting and stereotypical macho skills, whereas the women focus on being more in tune with nature, focused on really immersing themselves in the land, getting to know the area, and so they became more skilled in a broader way. The producers even picked up on this trend and started wondering if people would think that was scripted to make the woman do better, but no, that's just how it ended up. Contestants from this show sound really positive about it, and some even return to Naked and Afraid XL, which was this show spin-off with 12 contestants living on an island for 40 days. And a casting director for the show said, quote, No matter how harrowing the experience may have been, or what they have gone through, afterwards, in a really short amount of time, it's as if their skin grows back twice as thick, and oftentimes they want to go back out. Number 17. Byron Bays. Byron Bays is actually this new production from Netflix, B-A-E-S, a play on the name of the actual place, Byron Bay, in Australia. It's a reality show that follows a group of social media influencers who live there, and it has faced severe backlash from the community. Because right now, Byron is going through a housing crisis, climate change-induced increase in the haves and have-nots gap, I will link to some info on my site, but I read this really tragic interview with a woman there who has been trying to flee domestic violence with her three kids. She's financially unstable, in part due to fleeing. 
in part due to flooding. So they've been living out of this bus that she kind of DIY'd to be more livable. Now it's really flooded, black mold covers the ceiling. She knows she can't repair it much longer. She knows it's temporary. So she's spending a month living in a mansion graciously offered to her for a month by this wealthy guy. That's the thing. Byron is super, super wealthy. Huge mansions, except for some pothole issues, pretty much unscathed from the recent catastrophic floods that have affected over 700,000 people there. The outskirts of Byron Bay, where the people who can't afford to live directly in it live, that area is very, very severely, it's obvious that they're the most affected by the climate crisis. As of recording time, the average home price in Byron is over four times the average it was in 2013. About $3 million. The average rent for a house there right now, around $9.50 a week. $6.50 a week for one bedroom. This woman interviewed for the piece I'm talking about said the billionaires are pushing out the millionaires. Plus, flood insurance premiums range from 30 to 70 k there. People living in the area cannot afford to insure their homes and possessions. Plus, the median house price in Byron Bay nearly doubled due to the pandemic, this boom of remote work and everything. There was a protest and a petition circulating to have the show taken down, as well as several local businesses issuing statements denying filming rights on their property. Although Netflix has insisted they're not canceling the show, they're going through with it and say trust us, give it a fair shake first. They did change some production and location plans to accommodate certain requests. Apparently, Netflix is known for encouraging what others don't, which is inside joke content. So apparently the show has a lot of quips that if you're not an Aussie, it'll be lost on you. But they encourage that sort of localized dialogue. That's one of the reasons they've been excited to promote this show, to help their appeal in Australia. Adults Adopting Adults The title is pretty self-explanatory. It was a show with adults adopting other adults. It came out this January, and only three episodes aired. But then the past of Danny and Christy, one of the main couples on this show, came to light. It was bad publicity for the show when a TikTok resurfaced of Danny saying some weird, bigoted stuff. And people were very uncomfortable with the storyline because Danny and Christy were trying to adopt a 20-year-old and Christy feared that he would develop feelings for her because he did when they tried to adopt an 18-year-old previously. Really awkward, concerning behavior that pretty much tanked the show. There's something about Miriam. This was a show from 2004 where six guys competed, and they were chosen basically based on macho-ness, stereotypical masculine interests and behaviors. And those six manly men were competing at this villa in Ibiza for the love of Miriam Rivera, this beautiful woman. She would eliminate one of the guys each round, and the last man standing would get the big cash prize and a yacht trip with Miriam. The big plot twist was that Miriam would not reveal until the very final episode, after she had already chosen her man. Then she would reveal to him, in front of all the other guys, that she is transgender. The show touches on Miriam's backstory, her past with transphobic violence against her, things like that. 
And she really sounds like she was an incredible person, really full of life and so confident despite all of that, really feeling like she had to live her most authentic life. And people could love her or hate her for it, but she was going to be herself. She was a staple on the ballroom scene. She was very popular at clubs and stuff, very social and very well-liked. And she really wanted to be famous and accepted. So she agreed to do this show, and at the end of the day, what seemed to really be the sticking point for these guys was that she didn't have the official final surgery. And she just didn't want to. She chose not to. And that was her choice, but she still identified as a woman now, and these guys could not accept it. Okay, I have a lot of thoughts about this show. I saw it, and it is just so awful. (laughs) And not in the good awful TV way. It's really kind of pathetic, these guys. First of all, they're not even that cute. They could have picked much better looking guys. Second of all, they are all so dull, Miriam deserves better. All they want to do between dates is go get rowdy, drink, chat with the lads, as they say. They just did not want to be romantic. They were just young dudes acting like stereotypical young dudes. And they would make these transphobic jokes and stuff because occasionally one of them would speculate and start to wonder if Miriam was a woman. The bro culture was on full display. Which was actually the point of the show. Sky News had the show pitched as an interesting look into the psyche of bro culture and how they think about gender and stuff. Ultimately with the goal that the show would end with him saying something like, I don't care that you're transgender, you're still a woman and love is love, let's go on that yacht together. They really hoped it would be a show of about tolerance and acceptance. It very much did not turn out that way. When there were two guys left standing, the other contestants were brought back out to watch the big reveal. She chose Tom, and everyone cheered for him and was excited. And then the big moment came, and it is one of the most awkward scenes in reality TV history. Honestly, so hard to watch. This big reveal moment where she says, I was honest with you about everything except one secret, and in front of everyone she tells them that she is trans. And the storybook moment does not happen. This guy just stands there, aghast, and all the bros behind him start yucking it up. They are laughing their heads off. Like, you got played, you got pranked, the love of your life is, actually, you can't date her now. The host of the show is like, the cash prize and the yacht trip are still waiting for you, do you want to go with? And he says yes, at first. He is a compassionate guy who doesn't want to make her feel bad, feels bad for hurting her feelings, and still wants to then go on the trip, not see her go alone. That doesn't last long. Because at the end of the day, he didn't go on the trip, and the final shots you see include Miriam riding off on the yacht by herself. And him, in his room, making a mess, truly throwing a fit. This grown man really loses his temper, destroys the room. They actually did end up having four to five bouncers hired for that scene. They knew it could come to a head. The other guys felt duped as well, and so they even brought their story to a reporter suing for emotional distress, specifically conspiracy to commit assault. The reporter they talked to said, basically, you don't need a reporter, you need a lawyer. They hired the law firm Shillings, sued for that emotional distress claim, and also started suddenly complaining about the endless supply of alcohol and claiming that was part of a hazardous work environment. They also claimed safety regulations were by the wayside because of the swimming out to sea her challenge, where one of the contestants almost drowned because he wasn't swimming well. Eventually, they did settle for an undisclosed sum. 
the case did bring to light bigger issues about legally what counts as deception are you misleading someone if on your first date you don't tell them x y or z of course you don't tell them everything right away does omission equal deception where do you draw that line which is ultimately i guess why they settled they couldn't really be sure of victory if they brought it to a trial there is a podcast out now about this show called harsh reality which I frankly was disappointed by, it falls flat in some areas because it touches on so many deeper issues, so many deeper issues I wish they would spend way more time talking about, and they just sort of touch on them and move on. I get that a lot is still unknown, but I still feel like they could have done more, spent more time trying to get the answers. Like, they gloss over the date nights, really, what each consisted of conversation-wise, they never address how, after the show, someone Miriam was with pushed her out of a window. She spent three months in a full body cast in the ICU. They kind of gloss over that. They could have really further unpacked the epidemic of trans violence. They also really didn't spend a ton of time even talking about the lawsuit. They talked about the law, but the actual legal proceedings, not really. They also didn't really talk about her death, which was ruled a suicide, but some people close to her still have their doubts about that, because she did have partners who hurt her physically in the past. I would have also loved for them to talk about the contestant selection process more. Episode 1 really did spend a lot of time on that, but I wanted even more background about who almost made the cut but didn't, and why. And how are they defining finding the most manly men? I also wish the show hadn't spent so much time repeating how beautiful she was. Because to me, she also, from what I've heard of her, was an incredible, strong, interesting, vibrant person. Way more than just physical beauty, I would have loved to feel like I got to know her more. Granted, they do have a bonus episode, an interview with her former bandmate, but still. The series, I just felt like it should have been way longer, way more life-altering events before and after and during the show could have been unpacked each in their own episode. I've done a ton of research. A ton of sociologists have looked into not always specifically reality TV, but principles about social interactions that apply here. You'll see. I will link to all of the scholars' work on my site as always, as well as a link to the book I will constantly be referring to in this conversation. It's called True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us by Daniel J. Lindman, who also teaches a reality TV sociology class at Lehigh University, where she's also an associate professor. I really could nerd out, me and my sociology major I love to tout, about the Goffman references, Herbert Mead and the, the looking glass self, sociological imagination, Max Weber on the disconnect between value of work and wages, how our society would be structured way differently if those were aligned differently, dramaturgical analysis, of course. I could geek out about all that, but I'll try to keep this conversation not just in nerdy sociological framing, but in kind of layman's terms. But those are just some of the many topics she does touch on in the book that I think make sense in context here. So I've categorized, based on the scholarship, three main reasons to explain reality TV's appeal. The first one to dive into, it's an exaggerated version of ourselves. And Lindemann, I think, put it best by describing it as a funhouse mirror and basically life, an 11 out of 10 version of life. It's just an exaggerated version of our real lives. No matter how much you call fake or staged, it could be real. 
Part of the appeal is in trying to analyze and figure out what was a staged scene versus organically it happened. But no matter if it is or not, you do think there's a chance it is organic. That realistic fiction of sorts is what reality TV is. And that's what reality TV is. It cranks reality up a notch. So no matter how outlandish and unrealistic a scene in a show comes across, it's still rooted in a potentially true event. And it's this recreation of real dynamics about how we act around others. This one study I just found fascinating summed it up as, quote, We accept as authentic the fantasy that we co-produce. Talking about this concept of hyper-authenticity, contrived authenticity, it's still at the end of the day authenticity because it comes from real experiences. You may not spend hours on end crying about some allegedly stolen granola bars like in Top Model, but you have or know someone who has cried a lot and made a big deal out of something that wasn't. You have been disproportionately ticked off. Their experiences are rooted in reality. They really are, but it's just cranked up a notch. So we like to see that mirrored image of ourselves. To get to say, that's so me, and kind of live vicariously through the characters at times, we see ourselves in the characters, and that's comforting. Also comforting to us brings me to part two. Reason two, these shows reinforce stereotypes and binaries. It takes binaries and preconceived notions we still frankly maintain rigidly. Way less progress has been made away from stereotyping as a culture that we think. And it further drives home our preconceived notions. It's more psychologically comfortable to do this rather than upend a restrictive status quo. Because people are so multifaceted and layered, it's so much psychologically easier to not get to know them and not put forth that effort and instead fall back on tried and true stereotypes, clear-cut labels, reductive narratives, tropes. The tropes may change, taking on different names and forms over time, but they've largely stayed the same. And we get to see a lot of stereotypes on display still. A lot of norms of society, taken for granted assumptions, are really on full display. For example, views of married life. These reality shows are about a heterosexual, monogamous couple who maybe are going on a big life challenge together, and it's all about them finding love, maybe they want a kid. It's pretty by the book, actually. The way couples on reality shows divide labor. Who's doing the chores? Who's raising the kids and teaching them skills like hunting versus the emotional work? These shows also really show how we behave based on class. There are shows like Kid Genius, which really bring to light how kids grow up differently. There's that concerted cultivation. They talk about this in sociology, where wealthier kids grow up with more organized activity, extracurriculars, etc. And it's not necessarily better or worse than the other type of growth, but it's very different. And so those kids learn how to succeed in the institutionally awarded ways. And then they get on shows like Kid Genius versus the kids who had more of a, a learning experience with less income. They may have thrived and learned street skills in ways that book smart people didn't, but they're not going to get on that show. Hopefully that makes sense. Shows really implicitly show a lot about education, social class, plus the stark distinctions between social classes and between bosses and employees on shows like Undercover Boss. 
And actually, there was this cross-sectional study in Britain that showed how exposure to, quote, materialistic media messages, unquote, corresponded with anti-welfare views. Then there's this book called The Bizarre World of Reality Television, citing a study of teens from England who, quote, position themselves as TV critics and show, quote, disgust at working class participants on reality shows. Similarly, in a book called Reality Bites Back, this study showed how middle-class reality TV viewers see themselves at a distance. They separate themselves from who they see on screen. This us-versus-them is enforced. The sense, well, I'm not like them. They can kind of judge the program without realizing how much it's a mirror to their own life. These shows also perpetuate certain historical trends and further them, like the deinstitutionalization of marriage. And what I mean by that is it's basically a fancy sociological way to say romance has become less about practical needs over time and more about genuine love. So these shows highlight that trend in our society to prioritize relationships over steady marriage, over any marriage, and marrying because you truly want to. Some argue actually we're past institutional and compassionate marriage onto step three, individualized marriage, which emphasizes still maintaining your autonomy. And sociologist Gina Marie Longo brings up an interesting point about dating shows really highlight how the U.S. specifically defines real. And how slippery that concept actually is, with the example of green card applicants who have to prove they're in a relationship that is, quote, valid and subsisting and not fraudulent. And what immigration officers in this process view as red flags, like this is not a valid relationship reason for the green card, are large age differences, short courtship times, and requests for money. But there are a host of reasons those could be factors, and the relationship is still real and authentic. But it's just, it brings to mind a larger conversation to have about how do we define a real romance? If the dating shows are fake, what makes our real-life relationships not? What's different? Do we as a society, just like the people on the show, not feel pressured to be in or not in certain relationships? Fake implies a contrasting real relationship. What sociologists also find fascinating is how despite the removal of marriage as this top priority, bridal culture still is on top. Wedding culture is still thriving and viewed as this peak milestone day. Really interesting trends that reality TV perpetuates and highlights. Reality shows also show a lot of gender norms about male versus female character traits, a lot of heteronormative assumptions a lot of racial stereotypes. I will link to a bunch of studies on that on my site for sure, including some history about how the traveling minstrel shows of the 1800s really did leave a deep impact on images of marginalized people, plus the erasure of certain identities on TV, racial or otherwise, really also reinforces stereotypes about who is normal and who is an oddity. Reality TV also shapes perceptions of parenthood, and mom shaming is a thing now, in part due to reality TV, and people feeling this desire to project their, well, if I was a parent, I would have done this instead, attitude on the people on the shows. It's sparking a question again about what makes someone really a good parent. Well, how are you defining that? 
There are also very certain depictions of religions on reality TV, deviance and what straying from norms looks like, disabilities, views on friendship, social views on body image, really summed up well by Alice Marwick, who wrote about body culture media, described as, quote, a genre of popular culture which positions work on the body as a morally correct solution to personal problems. Specifically thinking about the swan here and how shows like that really not only reinforce how we define beauty, ugly, terms like that, but also how our society tends to like to treat symptoms and not causes, treat your insecurities without the deep-rooted diet industry that perpetuated those insecurities in the first place. Trying to individualize a systemic issue. Ageist assumptions as well. I could go on and on. Perhaps the most fascinating of the assumptions projected by us, by society, in reality shows in Turned Up a Notch, how we view childhood. The author talks about toddlers and tiaras in shows like that and how it's so interesting how people love or hate them and critique the parents, worry about becoming a stage mom themselves, and it's all about this need to control the image of kids and to feel like they are a reflection of us. This historian, Stephen Mintz, really fascinating writing he did on the sentimentalization of childhood, where he debunks a handful of myths about American childhood, including that it's just this totally isolated, carefree part of life where nothing bad happens, home is a place of stability, childhood is just this nice, happy, pure, singularly experienced time of life that's clearly defined. But he highlights how, historically, that's never been the case. There's never been one golden age of innocence. Historically, there actually have been a lot of changes, too, to even defining adolescent versus child versus infant. Those terms have applied to different age ranges across centuries. So it's not actually as set in stone as we think it is, what childhood even is, let alone what it looks like. And so it's interesting how much people are upset with the parents on shows like Dance Moms and stuff because they're saying childhood should be different. Childhood is supposed to be pure or whatever. It's interesting to unpack the underlying assumptions about what that even means and how they want to really use kids as perpetuators of the life they had and live vicariously through kids. Mint says, quote, there is a fourth form of psychological abuse that is perhaps the most unsettling of all, the objectification of childhood. This involves viewing children as objects to be shaped and molded for their own good. All this is to say, whenever we critique what we see on TV, we should remember we created that. We created the world they're making a show in. Society created the conditions to critique society. People also get this sense of being jolted and sometimes intrigued as a result by seeing binaries messed with and people crossing into different territory. For example, Vanilla Ice Goes Amish or Snoop Dogg with Martha Stewart. People seeing these characters basically straying from the script and going into a different setting, a different theater production with this analogy, that breaking the fourth wall type of attitude intrigues some people. I mean, think about how much shows and even fictional movies, the plot centers around someone who's put into a setting they don't quote-unquote belong in, that doesn't make sense for them, and the whole plot comes from them trying to acclimate themselves. So stereotypes are ironically necessary to take a show away from stereotypes. So for example, there was this show about Amish people living in the city, trying to navigate the city. If they could smoothly, there would be no show, no plot. 
they had to stay in accordance with Amish stereotypes, which are very different from city folk stereotypes, in order for the friction to be felt by viewers. People also just get a kick out of rooting for certain people or against certain people. The standard villain, getting to just keep up the familiarity of those patterns, bashing certain contestants, rooting for others. So as much as so many people call reality shows a guilty pleasure, so many people do that. So many people love this stuff. It's okay to admit that. I love this stuff. And people form group chats about this. Reality shows really actually bring people together. And sometimes actually show people who you wouldn't normally see on TV. Perhaps because it doesn't take itself so seriously. It allows for certain identities who didn't see themselves on screen to see themselves. Reason number three for the appeal. The social commentary reality TV inherently, often indirectly, makes in the ways in which its impact seeps into our daily lives is way beyond our control. This is the ultimate reason why understanding why we like reality TV is actually purposeful. It's meaningful. It's important. Because you can't escape it. Its impact truly has seeped into so much. People really trash the concept, but it's always been a part of our lives. TV influencing us of any genre. Terms like momager, we probably wouldn't have if it weren't for keeping up with the Kardashians and stuff. Even the inflection, the uptalk of the Kardashians, where they say things in the end in a higher note, I mean, that became more popular to speak like that since the show started. Like, it really does have a deep, deep impact on our psyches. Plus, we see them everywhere. The line between social media influencers, models, etc., and reality stars is non-existent now. Plus, reality stars have gotten so good on marketing, like the Rise and Shine merch, the whole Countess marketing, if you know, you know. It's given us merch, a new lexicon, a new way of talking, a new way of describing each other, because again, it's a mirror to us. And it ultimately has become just part of our lives. It feels quite intimate to watch, because it's like talking to and visiting friends or family, gossiping with them, up close as they give testimonials. It's kind of just on. You can go do a chore or something, leave it on in the background, no matter how long you take. When you come back, you can kind of pick up where it left off and not be too lost, because it follows that nice formula, and a lot of nothing happens too. So it's more of just an ingrained background part of our lives. And it's not always subconscious. There's some more concrete ways reality TV has affected our decisions. Let me give some examples. One study on how dating shows impact real-life dating surveyed young adults and found that male viewers of dating shows thought they were more realistic than those who hadn't actually tuned in, and those who watched more of it seemed to take those taken-for-granted assumptions about how relationships work more seriously, viewing the shows as, like, a guide. There have also been studies linking reality dating shows to getting in a hot tub with your partner and drinking with them earlier on in the relationship. Surveys have also shown clear links between people who choose to get cosmetic surgery and people who watch a lot of reality shows. In fact, also, super extensively viewing reality TV has been linked to those plastic surgery patients viewing themselves as more of an expert on plastic surgery overall. There have also been correlations between college students who watch a lot of reality TV and those who go tanning. One study found that viewers of Joe Millionaire, Temptation Island, and or The Bachelor were more likely to be sexually active males, or in the female survey respondents' case, more likely to talk openly about sexuality. 
One study using Google Trends, geographic data, Twitter data, and data about birth rates found that right around when a new episode of 16 and Pregnant aired, there would be a rise in searches for birth control. And they actually determined that about one-third of an overall decline in teen births in the United States were basically a result of the premiere of 16 and Pregnant because there was a 5.7% drop in teen births the first 18 months 16 and Pregnant was on the air. Abortion rates also dropped during that time, which indicates it wasn't just some drop in the amount of actual babies delivered, but the actual pregnancies to begin with was a lower amount. The ultimate bottom line here is that we blame society, and we created society, and we make up society. There's a whole bunch of other sociology literature I could talk about about the self versus the society, and how actually there is no self without a society. They are intrinsically linked, and so we should take accountability for the greater society to some extent. And our attention is what is causing certain trends in thinking to stay we decide what is entertainment. What do we value as entertainment? What do we spend our time watching? What do we consider interesting? Then more of those shows get made. What do we want to see? We want to see ourselves on TV. And we do that by rooting for and watching, contributing to readings for shows with archetypes that can broadly apply to us and the people we know. Of course, I can't not cover two more reality shows a bit. There's The Real World, which really changed the game in 1992, and then Big Brother. The Real World, Seven Strangers, Living Together, Monitored 24-7, lasted 32 seasons. It was actually initially a scripted series for MTV, originally called St. Mark's Place, about just young people living in NYC. But then, as co-creator Jonathan Murray put it, quote, we took the documentary form and commercialized it. That's what it was meant to be. It was meant to be a fresh take on the documentary genre. And that sort of surveillance 24-7 culture, that commodification and commercialization of truth and real life, that's the world we live in, and that's the world we made. Now just existing is on display. We're all famous now. There's also this book, The Art of Confession, where Christopher Grobe talks about confessionalism as a an art form, really, that has infiltrated different sectors of the art world, poetry, theater, etc., and how confessional performances can actually be quite comparable to testimonials in reality shows. This telereality, this view of everything being on display, makes what's real and what's not all the more slippery. The cameras are never off, so who are we really? I'm really sick of the tendency to label your reality TV viewing habits as guilty pleasure TV. Because this gets at a deeper issue about who the gatekeepers of good pop culture are. You say it's a guilty pleasure, says who? Who defines elite intellectual content? Plus, it's not right to deny each individual's role in contributing to the kind of society that set up that elite versus trashy binary in the first place. Whether you like it or not, we have all helped give rise to reality TV as it is today, and what we like and dislike about it are also things we like and dislike about the real world. We created reality TV, and so it's kind of as real as it gets. Anytime you call a reality star or a plot out of touch, maybe hold a mirror up and think about what society said that led you to that comment. Some really interesting answers pop up in your head when you really interrogate yourself every time you critique something on a reality show and the implications in what you thought. 
Big Brother has been analyzed with that term telereality, and I will link to a book about it on my site that really points out how it really foreshadowed a post-documentary culture where everything is documented and documentary in some way. To also make you feel better about taste, let me direct you to Pierre Bordeaux's take on taste in the book Distinction. The basic TLDR version of the book for you is that our tastes are not as individually determined as we like to think. We always like to think we are our own individuals, our own hobbies and interests and passions that are never influenced by media. That is simply not true. An interesting take on Project Runway from the author of the book True Story Quote, the very concept of a taste level, and indeed the whole premise of the show, referring to Project Runway, suggests that our fashion preferences aren't just personal and arbitrary, rather that there's some objective, tiered index by which they can be evaluated. If all this sounds like, gee, Hope, this sucks, why do we make this kind of society? How do we fix it? Well, the good news is that if we made a society that prioritizes and stereotypes certain behaviors, shames other behaviors, and we want to change that, we can because we created it. We created the bad stuff. We can tear it down too. And reality shows can actually be a prime platform to do that. A lot of media firsts about representation have come from reality shows. Different identities finally got a screen. Again, because maybe reality shows don't worry about titles, about what's prestige TV, what's elite. They just let people be themselves, and therefore the cultural gatekeepers who perpetuate certain assumptions about who should be seen and who shouldn't, they're not there to block the representation. There's actually a really interesting piece from this ethicist, Denny Elliott, that goes so far as to argue reality TV can be a tool that makes our future culture a more inclusive place. It can show how we're all so much more alike than we think, and all special in our own different ways. Reality TV can also be used to subvert stereotypes. For example, Gourmet Turner talks about this concept of the DIY celebrity and how people like Cardi B use stereotypes like Ratchet and they owned them and redefined them to suit their own needs and their own identity, playing with stereotypes to control your own narrative. And reality shows allow you to take charge of that narrative. From the book, True Story, quote, One might argue that reality TV itself is a key site for the democratization of taste. As we've seen, one of the reasons people watch the genre is for the social aspect, so that they can connect with others about its content. While reality TV retains a stigma, it is also potentially versatile as a mechanism for promoting interaction and solidarity across class lines. One more intriguing quote. Joshua Gaiman on how reality TV presents marginalized identities said it's better than nothing basically by saying, quote, there is in fact no choice here between manipulative spectacle and democratic forum. Only the puzzle of a situation in which one cannot exist without the other. I will leave you with one of the most iconic moments in reality TV history because there's so much there that sums up what I've been saying. In America's Next Top Model, you know it, the famous I was rooting for you, we were all rooting for you, Tyra Banks moment. Long story short, Tiffany returned for season four. She'd had heated fights before and seemed to kind of have this image on season four as having cleaned up her act and ready for a fresh start. She was in this double elimination round alongside Rebecca. Rebecca appeared upset, but Tiffany didn't really. And Tyra was basically assuming, you think this is a game? 
you're not taking the show seriously. You had so much potential. And so Tiffany basically said, I'm just tired of crying and visibly showing how upset I am because I can't change it. So I'm just going to radically accept it and move on. But Tyra insisted, you're acting like this is a joke to you. You know, why aren't you more visibly upset? Tyra actually said, quote, You aren't sick of being disappointed. If you were sick of being disappointed, you would stand up and you would take control of your destiny. Did you know that you had a possibility to win? Do you know that all of America is rooting for you? Do you know that? And then you come in here and treat this like a joke. When my mother yells like this, it's because she loves me. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you? What's so revealing about that in that moment, she's saying, first of all, again, it's real life, but ratcheted up, right? Because it's genuine, possibly genuine, caring and rooting for her to be a different person. And she thought potential had just been lost and wished Tiffany would see that. That could be a genuine reaction, but reality TV gives permission to make that an 11 out of 10 reaction, the overreaction. But it's rooted in maybe real emotion. It really crystallizes how hosts of these shows view themselves through the contestants. Kind of like that stage parents view themselves through their kids' dynamic I mentioned earlier, where if you let them down, if you don't look and act the way they want you to, if you don't cry for the cameras, that reflects bad on them, and they feel like you let them down personally. It just sums up how today your identity and your brand are becoming more and more synonymous. I'll leave you with that to think about, but that show and that scene in particular, really quite the summative microcosm of everything I talked about today. Thank you all for listening so much, and I will talk to you all again very soon with a new topic.